right now is a stressful time for a lot of people, especially for frontline healthcare workers. Project Parachute works to connect frontline COVID-19 healthcare workers and licensed therapists for free therapy sessions. That's right. With over 500 therapists across the country, they're working to find personalized support for every frontliner who is looking for emotional support and stress relief. If you are a licensed therapist who wants to donate time to the frontline, or if you're a COVID frontliner who needs services, visit project-parachute.org and sign up today. We'll make sure to put a link to it in our show notes. Absolutely. Thank you. Welcome to Psychodrama Podcast. This is your co-host, Katie Gordon. And this is Leonardo Oadilla, which rhymes with quesadilla. So, Leo, I try to think of something good that rhymes with Gordon so that I could match <laughs> your introduction. And right. all I could come up with was, like, warden or, cordon. like... A cordon. A security cordon. <laughs> okay, yeah. Boom. So, <laughs> right I should spot. have consulted you before. <laughs> How are you doing, Leo? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Just uh, I, f- I was feeling a little bit more productive this week, uh, feeling breaking away from the news and trying to disconnect a little bit for that and just having a little bit of a renaissance. Still a little bit surreal, but doing well. What about you? I am. I'm doing all right. I am, I guess, like everyone else, just doing the best that I can. And I am enjoying that we're having a guest on today because I like podcasting. That always makes yeah, me Yeah, I'm excited about this because this is something of the... Uh, the pandemic has been given a lot of insight into new human behaviors. And one of the big news that has been coming out is that apparently, in addition to screaming at each other for our political views, we're also watching a lot of porn. <laughs> yeah, apparently. <laughs> so we, I read a great article by Dr. Josh Grubbs called Porn Use is Up Thanks to the Pandemic on mm-hmm. the conversation. And I sent it to Leo and we we're both really interested in it. And then Josh was kind enough to join us today. So I will introduce Josh and then we can start asking him some questions. So Josh is a clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Bowling Green State University. He does research on the scientific study of addiction, personality, and religion, and um, notes that religion, particularly as it relates to addiction and personality, Josh is someone that I know through Twitter and have never met in person, but he is a very good tweeter. In that he is very funny (laughs) and also just a great communicator for the field of clinical psychology, which I truly appreciate. Really appreciating psychodrama that, yeah, for sure. So welcome, Josh. How are you doing today? Yeah, welcome, Josh. I am doing well. Thank you so much for having me. You are too kind. I just tweet the random thoughts that come in my head and occasionally do psychology with it, but I'll take the compliment. (laughs) (laughs) But that's that's why people actually follow you, because I find that I have been guilty myself of just like, if I'm just tweeting out like abstracts of articles all day, that doesn't keep people interested. But the fact that you have some jokes and humor and psychology in there, too, I think that that really helps. So I, right. I appreciate what you do with that. So don't want to lower the standard, the very high standards of the Twitter discourse these days. So <laughs> That's true. That's true. It's, it's very high standards. They, really they don't just let just... anybody sign up for that. <laughs> Josh was actually on the last podcast that I co-hosted, Jedi Council, so... Appreciate you coming back. And I was wondering if we could start off just by talking about how you got into this area of research. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, there, there's a short story and a long story. Um, the uh, the long story is that I got into psychology broadly because when I was still in high school, my brother came home as a freshman from college and 
he told me that I was a narcissist because his Psych 101 textbook had told him that. Oh my God. And and this, I mean, we have a long-standing rivalry, and I just thought he was just kind of being an ass to me. But like the reality is, um, you know, it was quite fascinating. Um, in that winter break when he came home, he left all his books home, and I I read his entire Psych 101 textbook, and I thought, this is amazing. I want to do this. Um, so that's how I got into Psych broadly. Getting into the porn stuff. Um, you, you know, I, I can't say that I decided early on, like, I definitely want to be known as, as the porn guy or the porn researcher, but it is one of the topics that like drew me into psych, um, especially clinical. So I, I went to a religious university for undergrad and I remember like everybody was addicted to porn. Like that was the thing. Like all the dudes were like addicted to porn. But that's what Sorry, they said. Josh, and I was, you go? I did. I, I, I don't think I had that from your bio. Where did you go? Just out of curiosity. So when, my freshman year, I went to a religious school as well. And it was a very interesting experience. Yeah. So, um, it's one that, you know, 10 years ago, maybe you hadn't have heard of, but it, it's Liberty University. Oh, Liberty. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah. So that's where I did my undergrad. I was no raised. Kidding. Yeah. I was raised very, very conservative Christian Got evangelical it. background. And so that's that's where I went. Um, you heard it here first, folks. Uh, yes. The kids at Liberty cannot stop with the porn. Yeah, more or less. <laughs> we, we will. We can edit that. If you need to edit uh, anything out, just say banana bing bong and we can just edit it. <laughs> Fair enough. No, but no, it is. I just recall when I was there in this really conservative Christian environment, how obsessed the culture was with how bad porn was. And it's. <laughs> It's not that I was, inc you know, I thought porn was great. It was just that I thought, hey, you know, this doesn't make sense. If you're telling me, I remember one statistic being thrown out at some meeting where so they said, we think 50% of the men on this campus are addicted to porn. And I'm like, oh my gosh. if 50% of the men on this campus have an addiction, I think campus would look different. Like, <laughs> mm -hmm. There wouldn't be so many people around. Yeah. And so it just, it didn't make sense. Why are religious people saying they're so addicted to porn? And, you know, I did a little bit of research as an undergrad there. I had a, actually a faculty member there who really encouraged me to pursue it. And then I got into grad school um, at Case Western Reserve and my advisor there, wonderful, wonderful person. And she basically told me, you know, if you can manage your milestones I'll give you as long of a lease as you want to do the research you want to do. Um, and and so she started letting me include a few items here and there on some big surveys, asking about porn use, asking if people thought they were addicted to it, things like that. And we just started really looking at this idea that people that feel like they're sinning, people that think that they're committing a transgression, people that are violating their morals by viewing pornography are way more likely to say, hey, I'm addicted to pornography. And so it started off as like one paper, and now I think we've probably published 30 papers on porn. Um, and so, you know, it, it was one of those things that was just kind of an interest that got me into the field. And then I guess the timing of, of when I was starting my career, it just was the right time for it. And, you know, people people seem to really be into the research. Yeah, definitely. So I in a university setting, I, I think that's especially interesting if it's like identified as a problem and things like that were there was there like a counseling center on campus that would help would people like go for treatment for it um i would say 
counseling center, but like in the air quotes, right? Mm. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. So there was definitely a biblically based counseling center on campus, and there were lots of sort of 12 stepping groups yeah. towards, um, I mean, they were called accountability groups or support groups, but very 12 stepping around beating the addiction. Um, and then, I mean, the other resources, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of literature um, on porn addiction in religious communities. So there's a really popular series in the evangelical Christian community mm-hmm. called uh, Every Man's Battle. And there's a couple of series in the Latter-day Saint Church that are like that. The conservative Catholic Church has their own publications on it. I mean, all of the conservative religious groups, well, all of the conservative Christian religious groups in the U.S. seem to have quite a lot to say about it. When did you graduate from Case Western? Like, when were you an undergrad and when were you at, when did you go to grad so school? So I, I graduated undergrad um January of 2010, so like, like winter okay. of 2010, and then yeah. I started grad school in fall of 2010. Because I got my PhD in 16. Got it. Because it seems like there's such any uh, juxtaposition or between the time that you're coming out of grad school and especially as internet porn starts really taking off mm-hmm. uh, in the 2000s. So it probably your your area of work just kind of saw uh, a, an intense explosion of you know productivity and like areas to, to study. Yeah, yeah. We're actually, um, my lab right now is working on this massive systematic review of compulsive sexual behavior research, which is adjacent to this. And I think we, right now where we are in the review, basically from like 97 to 2006, there was about two papers a year published on the topic. Mm -hmm. And then from like 2007 to 2016, it was like 15 papers a year. And then from 2017 to now, it's like 50 papers a year. Oh my God. Wow. Um, and it, it keeps accelerating. And so it, it, it did take off. Like, I mean, I, I talk, you know, I've had people ask me before, like, how did you get into this? Or how have you been able to produce so much? And I'm like, frankly, luck. I was born in the right year to be entering the research market right at this time. Like, it's, it's timing's been great. And you mentioned that, like, a concept, like, you know, when you were an undergrad, and that's certainly, that was the case when I was an undergrad as well, that briefly for uh, at the Christian institution that I went to, is this idea that porn is pervasive and sinful and it's something you have to be struggling. And um, can you maybe talk a little bit about that concept that people can be addicted to it? What, you know, where do you stand? Maybe summarize a little bit of what the data have to say about it. Where do you stand yeah. at? Yeah, so the notion of, of pornography addiction or, or really sex addiction, it's kind of hard to disentangle the two, is really controversial in the research literature. I mean, it was introduced as a diagnostic idea probably in the late 70s early 80s the first really big name in this area was a guy by the name of Patrick Carnes who runs an addiction recovery clinic and he wrote about it and he published a book out of the shadows confronting sexual addiction or something like that mm-hmm. talking about how it was you know really dangerous and bad and could ruin your life um Research didn't really take off on it. There was a few names, you know, a few researchers, Eli Coleman and Marty Kafka and a few other people that did research earlier on that was really important, but it was intermittent and it tended to be very niche in the sense of like, well, it's sex addiction, but for people dealing with pedophilia or it's sex addiction in people dealing with mm-hmm. this weird paraphilia over here that is we consider you know diagnostically interesting so it was not really it didn't get a lot of empirical attention um from the research community for for years it wasn't until the 2000s which was accelerated by the internet right so the internet mm-hmm. happens 
and all of a sudden people are like, wait a minute, we can use this for sex, which is just how humans work, right? We get into <laughs> technology, we're like, we can use this for sex. Um, There's painting caves. Hmm, wait yes, a minute. Exactly. <laughs> like, you know, the earliest cave drawings, you basically some of the oldest ones in the world, there are clearly indications of people, you know, drawing the procreation, if you will. And it, it happens throughout all of human history. We, we use new technologies for sex, but there is something, you know, a little different about the internet, the idea that you can stream, you know, high quality and oftentimes live, you know, sexual acts right into your home. That's a new, new thing. And so this idea really started to attract more and more attention. It started more from a moralistic place, less from a research place. But increasingly researchers got on board with it and by the time the dsm-5 was proposed there was a proposal for hypersexual disorder as a diagnosis and it went through a full field trial it got decent marks in the field trial clinicians seemed to really like it um it's still kind of a bit of a mystery why it never made it into the dsm-5 um we know that uh, you know that some people really liked it apparently some other folks didn't yeah. there wasn't a lot of clarity there and so I think it was 2013 was when it was indicated that it would not make it into that manual. But starting in 2018, um, a new diagnosis was proposed for the International Classification of Diseases, mm -hmm. um, Compulsive Sexual Behavior Disorder. And in 2019, it was voted to be included as an impulse control disorder. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the criteria for compulsive sexual behavior disorder, it, it's exactly what everyone has kind of called sex addiction, right? Like it's mm -hmm. dysregulation. These people are out of control in their sexual behaviors. They can't stop. They've tried to stop and they can't. It's causing them problems. It's interfering with their life. It's been going on for months or years. And it's very much what we would colloquially call sex addiction. And so uh, under that, pornography use, excessive pornography use, and let's be very clear, when we say pornography use, everybody knows you're talking about masturbation too. This is, these are not separate, like, intellectual pursuits. Um, <laughs> if someone's viewing pornography for the intellectual side of things, they're lying to you. Uh, and so these are separate Playboy things. has been out of, of business for a long time. Yes, that, that, exactly. that excuse is sorely, sorely out of vogue. <laughs> right. You know, you don't you don't say, well, I was streaming the pornography because of the acting. I really, you know, the <laughs> so, Joyce, so Joyce Carol Oates is not writing for Pornhub these days. So. It, as it turns out, no. They, they couldn't get up, but yeah, they're there. You know, there are lots of parodies in porn, right? You know, you're not going to find, you know, what um, Lin-Manuel Miranda writing Hamilton for Pornhub. But I guarantee you can find something about Hamilton humping on Pornhub, right? Um, Katie, you're you're the big theater uh, music aficionado. What uh, what what are some of the best par porn parodies or musicals that you can kind of just rattle off for us? I, I'm afraid I don't know any off the top of my head. So okay, we'll go with sorry that. to disappoint. <laughs> So typically, yeah, right, ahead, typically when, when you don't know something, we encourage you to Google it. This is one of those <laughs> things where listeners Google at your own risk. Yeah, um, exactly. That better work. Please be careful. Let me stop you. But please continue. Sorry. Yeah. So, yes. So, masturbation. so it, it involves masturbation, and it is clearly something that some people experience dysregulation and problems with. Now, there is still a pretty fierce debate as to whether or not it is an addiction. Uh, and that's uh, that debate I don't see getting settled in the next couple of months or a couple of years. It's it really carves at the nature of what 
what is addiction? Because if addiction is a dysregulation, you know, out of control behavior that you cannot stop, that's ruining your life, then yeah, obviously porn use can become that for some people. It's rare, but it can happen. But there's all sorts of behaviors that can fall into that. You know, we don't technically, so there is some literature on the notion of exercise addiction, but there aren't many serious researchers who say, oh yeah, you can totally be addicted to exercise. Most of them will say, well, no, either you have a kind of compulsive behavior pattern or maybe an eating disorder combined with exercise or some other combination, but it's not a true addiction. That's a great point because I think, honestly, in with within eating disorders, it's been hard to define. People want to think about, like, how many hours is it per week that they're engaging in the exercise? But it, it ultimately, what seems predictive in a lot of cases is their cognitive relationship with it. How do they view how much they're exercising? How do they feel if they're unable to exercise because they're sick or injured? Are they skipping out things in their life? And is that kind of when you go into determining whether someone's pornography use is an issue? Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's what it really comes down to. You know, I can't, you can't give me a number of how many hours of pornography you're viewing and and me say that's definitely addiction. Now, I say that, obviously, if you come and say, well, I view nine hours a day or I view 14 hours a day, I'm going to assume so eight something. Hour K. So eight, yeah, eight's the count, <laughs> right? Eight, eight hundred. Thank you, Dr. Grubbs. That's, 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 that's a big cutoff right there. <laughs> <laughs> but, but truthfully, it, you know, it's one of those things that, so the person viewing 30 minutes a day, but it's while they're at work mm-hmm. and they get caught yeah. and lose their job, and they still can't stop. Is that an addiction versus say somebody spends two hours a day, but they're single and it's always in the evening when they're at home off of work. Is that an addiction? I mean, it's not interfering. We so it really does come down to, I mean, I think for me, the big factors I look for clinically, and even when I talk about it in when we're writing about this or, or giving talks about it is, is it impairing the individual's life? And if they've tried to stop, can they? Because it's oftentimes, I mean, a lot of times with addictions, people don't realize they have a problem until they try to stop and realize they can't. And so that's an important kind of, I think, factor here. Now, whether or not it's a true addiction versus an impulse control disorder versus a compulsive behavior pattern is getting into minutia that it's fine for academics to debate. But in the real world, you know, we don't have clientele coming in and saying, well, you know, I really think that you're calling this an impulse control disorder, but if you treated it as a compulsive behavior pattern, I would I would recover quicker. <laughs> right, right, exactly. That's not how clients think. That's not how people think. So the reality is if someone feels like they're out of control, it's impairing their life, and they don't feel like they can stop, well, then we need to work on a plan to help that behavior get to where they want it to be. Now, religion and morality complicate that, but that's the general picture. Do you mind saying, I, I, I'm interested in hearing, since that kind of was how you got into this area of research, how does religion mm-hmm. fit into yeah, that picture? Question. Yeah, so so something you know that we have postulated is that some people feel out of control because they are acting out of accordance with their morals even when their behavior is objectively not excessive, right? Mm. So everyone, you know, has a kind of ideal set of beliefs and behaviors that they want to live by, like this ideal view of themselves, of the person I want to be. And then they have their actual behaviors. And most often in life, we're navigating some bit of like who we think we should be and who we actually are and kind of managing that tension. Well, 
it with it comes to religion, you know, one of the areas that this is extremely obvious, this tension, is in sexual behavior. There's so many prescriptions, particularly in in American brands of Christianity, whether it's Catholicism, whether it's evangelicalism, whether it's Latter-day Saints, all of these conservative brands of American Christianity have very strict standards for sexual behavior mm-hmm. that often ignore, if you will, just natural sexual impulse. And so what people find is if you give most people, certainly, and now there's certainly evidence that men use pornography more, so you give most men, but most people in general, unlimited access to sexually stimulating materials, uh, they're going to want to use them occasionally. And for people with very conservative beliefs, this is a pretty deep transgression of deeply held religious beliefs. Leads to a lot of guilt and shame, leads to feelings of incongruence, which then leads to feelings like something is wrong with me. I'm, you know, I can't stop this behavior. Now, mind you, by can't stop, they may mean I'm viewing once a month and I can't stop myself from viewing once a month. But there's this feeling that something must be wrong. And therefore, you know, what can it be? Well, if I can't stop this behavior, even if it's rare, it must be an addiction. And, and I, I struggle. I mean, there's a couple of layers to that. You know, one, anything that's that rare, calling it a full-blown addiction, we need to be very thoughtful about it. I'm, you know, certainly um, if somebody was binge drinking once a month, we would say that there maybe is an alcohol use disorder, but we would call it alcohol dependence. Uh, you know, that's that's a separate, it, it's not as clear. So if someone's saying I'm addicted to pornography, I'm viewing it for 20 minutes once a month, that, that just doesn't make a lot of sense, right? right? Okay. And so we've demonstrated this in studies. We, we have a paper coming out in clinical psychological science um, in, a, I think, next month where we show in a nationally representative sample that the more religious you are, the more likely you are to interpret any pornography use as feeling addicted. Um, and we had a paper earlier this year in the Journal of Abnormal Psychology where we looked at this over time. And, and the best predictor over time of whether or not you think you're addicted to pornography is whether or not you feel like you're violating your morals by viewing pornography. And we, I mean, we've, we've, it's been demonstrated in, in samples in Malaysia where some, a lot of these findings hold out. We've seen these findings hold in Poland. We have ongoing research in a couple of other countries right now looking at these things um, where it's clear that people that feel like they're transgressing their morals by viewing pornography are much more likely to view their pornography use as being an addictive behavior pattern. And it kind of strikes me that there's kind of two, two aspects to the distressing and impairing branches or you know the two criteria that we when we think about psychological disorders mm-hmm. and it seems like for people who are highly religious and for whom pornography or you know sexuality is outside of the context of marriage is wrong that the stressing part is going to be more salient or magnified if they ascribe to you know those le- those religious branches that are that have those strict limits around sex uh, kind of adding that cultural aspect to it, but then the, then there's the other aspect using the uh, the ad, the true addiction model when it comes to the impairment and distress and compulsivity that the person you know may not have. And I always struggle with the, um, alcohol as a, as an analogy for sex or stuff because I think it's really helpful in some cases, but it breaks down in some cases. Yep. And then, so when it's helpful is to think about, like you said, the person is binging. Uh, you know, once a month. However, you know, it's like they're in college or whatever, and then it's more or less normative, and the person doesn't feel any conflict because of it. However, they're highly religious and they start really guilt, you know, guilting themselves, or they get a lot of uh, static from their local community about it. Then that distress, the, the distress and impairment might be increased, and it's highly dependent on that contingency. 
on the other hand, if the person starts then kind of going down that path and they are, as you said, unable to stop themselves or doing it at work, they start neglecting their chores or like cruising for sex or whatever uh, while doing other, you know, not working or uh, getting in trouble with the law, then we start that that uh, analog to to true addiction seems a little more pertinent. But, you know, it's, it's a tricky place where you, you know, when people are truly addicted and who gets to decide what is truly addicted versus not. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a, a decent summary of where things are at. And this is part of what makes it so complicated. You know, the notion of what addiction is in general and then translating addiction from even translating models of addiction from one substance to another substance gets very mm. muddy very quickly because we, we certainly for years have recognized the notion that cocaine can be addictive in some sense, but it doesn't function at all neurochemically the same way that we see with opioids, the same way that we would see with alcohol or how we see with methamphetamine. These are very different classes of drugs, and yet they can all form these patterns of dependence. But dependence itself is not necessarily an indicator for addiction, right? Because, you know, we're all dependent on caffeine, or at least a lot of us are. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's all very muddy. And then when you start adding layers to it, because it's a behavior, and not just a behavior, it's a behavior that you're biologically driven to engage in. You know, it's one thing to say gambling can become addiction because there's no evolutionary reason that we should really sit in front of a slot machine. Um, although there are models for that. Uh, when it gets to sex itself, you know, this is literally a drive that's essential for the survival of the species. It's, it's the same thing we talk about with the notion of food addiction, which is controversial where clearly some people become very dysregulated in their eating, but is it an addiction or not? And can you develop a food addiction when if you stop eating food, that's also a disorder? It's all messy. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I think bringing up both food and porn addiction or porn behaviors, I should say, since I shouldn't use the controversial term that we're talking about, but um, dysregulated behavior with, with porn use and with eating, both things I think people have talked quite a bit about with the pandemic situation because of physical distancing. Mm -hmm. It seems that um, many people are at home more or they're supposed to be. Some of them are uh, under stay at home orders or otherwise doing that. I've certainly, I think people more openly talk about their struggles with eating than than pornography, for example, like on Twitter or something like that. But your article is really interesting because they're it's show they're actually data, right? That Pornhub use was up since physical right. distancing measures started. Yeah, there there certainly seems to be data, and mind you, it's being released, you know, by the industry itself. Mm -hmm. So make of that what you will. But showing that pornography use is up, and it would make sense if it is up, right? We know from past work that the primary reasons people view porn are to feel good or to feel less bad. And I say that very broadly. And when I say less bad, I mean, you know, a common motivator for porn use is boredom. Mm. Uh, stress can be a common motivator for it as well. Loneliness can be a motivator. Dealing with feelings of anxiety and depression can be a motivator because porn does provide a temporary distraction. And so if people are sitting at home with a lot of time on their hands, they might be bored, they might be stressed, they might be lonely, they might be depressed, they might be anxious, uh, they might be wanting to do something that feels good, and porn is very conveniently there. Uh, in most cases, especially for people that are living in you know, situations where they're living alone, um, 
in the developed world with, you know, high speed internet access. And so it, it makes sense. You know, when I wrote this thing uh, for, for the conversation, I didn't really think much of it. I was like, well, you know, I've seen the stats that porn use is up. This, this makes sense. I'll just throw together some thoughts. And it actually did get a lot more attention than I was expecting. Um, because I guess, you know, people hadn't really thought about it all the way through, but this is very normal and natural. It's not like everybody went on to, you know, quarantine, went on to their social distancing and developed raging porn addictions. They right. have more time on their hands. So. And I think it's also in, in, we can think of the data on the pre-internet and pre-readily available pornography. There's uh, a few data indicating that there's kind of baby booms associated with either pandemics or times when even uh, prolonged periods of time when there's uh, power outs. So like countries that have to go through rationing of electricity and all of a sudden the more time that people are at home outside of our routine more or as you said, bored or anxious or whatever, then they are going to engage in activities that are going to make them feel better in the in the short term, whether that be eating more, drinking more and because porn kind of has that similar effect then they're going to be consuming more porn or having more sex uh, with whoever's available. And then we'll have a, a, a corresponding baby boom. I guess we'll, 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 be, we'll see if we see that in, the, in nine months or 10 months or whenever. <laughs> I right. think a lot of it depends on home situations in terms of, well, if people are near their partners and if they have kids and if they're trying to work from home. So I, I, I could definitely see that going in different ways. But something I thought was interesting is that some people at least, I saw one response to your article, Josh, that said, this is going to be bad. Like now all these people are going to have more time for porn use and some of them are going to develop basically porn addictions to that. What do you think of that argument? So I'm skeptical of the argument right off the bat that just because people are viewing more porn now that they're going to develop an addiction. That presupposes this idea that porn is inherently addictive, right? So Yes, if everybody was using more heroin now, I would expect a rise in heroin addiction. But porn is not heroin. Porn is porn. And so when people, I mean, I I guarantee you I would place very serious money, I'm talking about other behavioral addictions, but I would gamble serious money on when social distancing measures are released, porn use is going to bottom out at least for a couple of weeks. Because people are going to want to be outside with their friends, being social, doing things, and they're not going to be sitting at home bored anymore. Um, is it possible that when this is all said and done and we re-enter some semblance of a normal world, if if that's possible, it's certainly possible at that point that porn use could be higher than it is now. But I don't see any reason to expect that it would be. So the notion that using more in a very specific time like this, it's it's very much the same notion. I mean, are we expecting Netflix use to be as high once mm-hmm. this is all over mm-hmm. as it is right now? Are we expecting Zoom use to be as high? You know, we're that. Are we expecting podcast yeah. listening to be that high? Like <laughs> people are bored. They're doing things because they're bored. Well, and let's so, hope that our you know the the, the psychodrama <laughs> habit psychodrama is going to be viral by the way. You know that, viral, right? and it yeah. becomes the new pandemic. Exactly. <laughs> so it sounds like to me like um, one of the I don't know if this this is an accurate way to put it, but one of the big differences between say people who are against pornography versus how how you're conceptualizing it is you're viewing it as like people have sex drives and now they have more time on their hands and this is a way that people kind of regulate their emotions whether it's boredom anxiety or depression and so when there are other options 
most, not all, but most of them will kind of more or less use those other options. Whereas for other individuals or other camps, maybe um, view pornography as more um, something like more like a substance like heroin or yeah. something like that, where once they once they start it, it's going to hook them in and, and they're going to you know not be able to stop. Is, is that their argument? More or less, yes. I mean, th- this is the notion. I mean, a lot of the kind of anti-pornography activist community, if you will, the basic idea is that porn use is inherently addictive like a drug because the Internet provides a type of pornography that's never existed before. More or less, that's what the argument is. It hinges on the notion that like, there's just unlimited availability of porn now, which was never there before. And so I don't think that it's complete nonsense to say porn is different now. I just I don't think that we have enough evidence yet to suggest that because porn is different now, it must be addictive. I maybe if you could talk a little bit about the the pro porn because I am kind of I've been curious about the you know the the, the anti but also the the pro aspect. Um, are there any to, at the at the risk of sounding pro porn? Um, are there any data suggesting positive aspects of it? Because we've talked a lot of, of fre- frequently a lot about uh, kind of the negative and the addictive aspects of it. But there's I know there's a few data looking at uh, perhaps either positive or not so negative aspects. And so maybe you can talk a little about those things. Right, right. So, so I mean, you know, to own my bias as a researcher in this field, my, my general thought is that and and I would even say a bias, even though it's going to sound very neutral, is that I just I view pornography as a thing that is. It exists. Pornography is a thing that exists. It is neither good nor bad. It is just a thing that exists. Mm. And that whether or not it becomes good or bad depends a lot on individual difference variables and views of it. So we we know you know pornography use is associated with more sexual openness. It's associated with a greater willingness to ask for what you want sexually in an encounter. So there are times that that in in like partnered encounters, you were more willing to assert what you want. There are times that that can be a bad thing, you know, where you might have situations where someone's asking for some sort of violent act that they think would be fun because they saw it in porn and that's maybe problematic. But there's also times that that's maybe very positive if you feel more assertive in asking for your sexual needs to be met by your partner. And that can work very well, especially if you're not only focused on yourself. There's, um, you know, there's certainly evidence that people often do use pornography as a distraction from boredom um, or from mild stress and that it's not problematic. Now, if all you ever do to cope is view porn, that's probably problematic. But if you're stressed and you view porn for 20 minutes and you feel less stressed afterwards, that's probably not a bad thing. Um, and so there, there is empirical evidence that the majority of people who view pornography do not report problems associated with that use. There's a subset that reports quite a bit of positives coming from that use. And there is a subset separate from all of this over there that do report some problems coming from that use. And this is kind of goes to that idea of like pornography just is right. Some people use it and it's fine. Some people use it and it's great. Some people use it and it's bad. And whether or not those things happen aren't a factor or a function of the pornography it's a function of the person viewing it right and that again to me it always I, it, the heuristic of the of a, of a substance is kind of then it, it becomes adept uh, like a good an apt analogy because like for some people a glass of wine is fine for some people they can leave it in touch and then they're okay and for some people it will become a problem and then there's vast wide individual differences that are influenced by all sorts of things from 
genetics to comorbidities with other disorders and social factors. Yeah. What subset of approximately would, would you know or um, estimate do develop problems with pornography? This is this is tricky, right? So it depends on what you mean by problems and how you define them. And so if we are just looking at whether or not someone identifies as an addict, like how many people view pornography and say later on, I think I can't stop. We see up to 11% of porn-using men say that, which is a huge number. But if you actually ask other ways it's interfering in their lives, it's actually very low. And so we wouldn't necessarily diagnose that as a self-reported addiction. So, so probably 10-11% of men that view pornography do think that it's maybe a problem in some way. Um, the number for women is about 3 or 4%. Still pretty decent numbers. But we don't have clinical data on how many of those people, or, and we don't have epidemiological data with thorough assessments that really show how many people are actually having their lives negatively impacted because of these behaviors. And, and how so, many might be just like they feel guilty because of their use. Because exactly. It's contradictory. Exactly. Lives. Got it. Yeah, yep. that, that's interesting. And it's hard to have, hard, have that epidemiological data if there's still not agreement within the field as to whether this is something that we should be looking from an epidemiological Yes. I mean, yes. epidemiological research is outrageously expensive, and so it's it's very hard to convince people, like, hey, we're still trying to figure out if this is a real thing. Do you mind dropping a few dozen million dollars right. so that we can study this in <laughs> yeah. 300,000 people? Yeah, because right? Congress already has problems with some other very serious research that it just sounds questionable. Well, I can't imagine them being like, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Let's drop a lot yeah. of tax money to support that, which actually kind of brings me a little to a question that I've been having for a little while is one of the things with internet porn is that it is so readily accessible, but it's also readily investigatable. I don't know if that's a word, but it's readily, uh, and I think the Pornhub, uh, you know, think about it, what you will. It's really interesting and really amazing the amount of statistics that they're able to put out regarding usage and who and when and to tie to various events. And so I don't, I'm wondering if you you have any thoughts regarding, you know, the, porn, the Pornhub insights that they put out. And also if you've read a book called A Billion Wicked Thoughts by this comp uh, computational neuroscientist at Boston University, who just analyzed porn uh, patterns usage using, you know, essentially uh, search engine uh, search engine results and, you know, what it said about human, uh, human sexuality, just basically using data from the internet in order to make conclusions about human sexuality and in both its, you know, quote unquote, normal and it's more deviant in the statistical mm -hmm. sense uh, manifestations. Yeah. So, you know, I do think it's fascinating. And so, and I think I kind of indicated this before when I was mentioning, you know, Pornhub indicating their stats for use going up, you know, anytime that a vested party releases statistics on whatever they have, I'm always, you know, interested but skeptical. You know, I do gambling disorder research as well. And when the casino industry, you know, releases numbers on how much they've helped people with gambling addiction, I'm like, eh, I don't know about that. <laughs> um, and so I, any, so their statistics, I think, are fascinating. And it's clear that one of the big messages I think that they want to put out is that porn use is normal. And maybe that's true. Um I think the bigger picture is the level of precision of detail that they can put together with 
use patterns. You know, they released a special data report after the false nuclear, what was it? A false nuclear strike was called over Hawaii. There was a warning. Oh, right. Yeah, I remember that in Hawaii. They had had stats on that, on how much porn use cratered and then went up. Like people stopped viewing porn when they thought they were going to die. But everybody's calling their loved ones being like, okay, I'm out of here. And the next thing is, we're alive. And we're back on (laughs) probably coping with anxiety. But like, so, you know, it's fascinating, but it it goes to my just general, the big data world we live in where everything's being tracked. You know, regardless of whether or not you you have an account on some porn websites, you know that they track IP addresses. You know that they use cookies. Private browser isn't truly anonymous, whatever. So you know that there is a lot of this data that's maintained as well. And so if they're releasing these incredibly detailed reports, I'm always fascinated to think, well, what what other data do they have that they're you know that they're holding on to? And this, I mean, it's it's more of just a, a big big data privacy concern with the world in general. Um, that what Pornhub is doing as an industry um, and the people that own Pornhub, I think, is less concerning from the perspective of the porn and much more concerning from the same perspective and concerns that I have from Apple and from Amazon and from Google and everyone else with that level of data and precision and predictions that they can make, you know, that they're, that they have on file somewhere. But one thing I did want to ask, um, if you don't mind, before we wrap up is how, so some, even though the numbers vary, there do seem to be legitimately some individuals that struggle with their porn use and that Mm -hmm. it can affect them in their relationships and or at work, or they're very distressed about it. So you mentioned early on that there are some 12-step models and there are some models developed within different religious denominations. How would you as a therapist approach that issue if someone presented saying, hey, I have a porn addiction and I really need help with it? How, what would you do clinically? Yeah, and so this is an important question. And I want to be very clear here. Whether or not you want to reduce your porn use because of your moral beliefs or because you are viewing too much or because it's causing problems at work or because you are out of control, it doesn't matter. If you want to reduce your behaviors and I'm the clinician in the room with you, in most circumstances, I'm going to work with you to help you live the life that you want to live. I'm going to help you work to live in accordance with the values that you have. You know, I don't want to make it sound like if someone if someone says – you know, I feel addicted to porn and I find out, well, it's really a moral shame issue. That doesn't mean it's not a real problem. And the solution is not, well, just drop your religion, man. Have you tried atheism? It is way better or something like that. That's just, (laughs) that's not how I I work as a therapist. And that's not how any ethical therapist I think works. I think the solution is figuring out, well, let's talk about what your values are around your life and whether or not this behavior lines up with those values. And if it doesn't line up with those values, let's work on ways to to do it less. With the caveat that if you slip up, so to speak, or if you still indulge in it occasionally, you aren't allowed to hate yourself for that. Like you, We have to find a way for you to be human and to make mistakes without it being a crushing, debilitating, shame-inducing experience. And this is the same thing for any you know substance use addiction. We take similar approaches. Sometimes there's you know, pharma, pharmacotherapies or medications people can take that help with substance use. Uh, sometimes there's other behavior modification we may implement, but the basic idea of learning how to accept your flaws, try to do better, and if you slip up, realizing it's not the end of the world, I mean, that's that's just basic behavior modification that we see in all of the addiction therapies. So, of course, I apply that here 
in in whether or not it's a full blown addiction or just somebody trying to cut it down because it it is something that violates their morals. That's great. Yeah, it's a very kind of to me harkens a lot. You know, act uh, acceptance. Yeah, therapy very very uh, humanistic, very very nice approach. Cool. That's a great question, Katie. Thank you, dude. Leo, do you have any other questions? I don't, I would, the, the only question that I had was like, if, if do you know any research regarding differences between or any data or any opinions regarding male versus female produced uh, directed porn and male centric porn? Because uh, I know that's oh, for the people who are more pro porn that are kind of calling it a, a, you know, the two types of feminists are people who kind of fall along those lines. We like to see it as a more of a normative and a positive expression of sexuality versus those who don't. And so a lot of the kind of female and um, uh, female producers and uh, or alternative lifestyle producers putting out their own porn away from kind of what used to be the mainstream male centric pornography. Right. So so this is a big debate. And, and it goes, I mean, like I talk about debates about pornography being contentious anywhere, um, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and the the feminist art critiques against pornography or defenses of pornography that's also an intense set of debates that i try to stay away from completely because it, it's <laughs> oh, a nice. very it's just a it's a very intense debate that gets at kind of the subjective nature of it and it starts it, it's less about the data and more about kind of the heuristics or, or the framings that people are using to think about what pornography is and what it means in general um and that starts getting into the humanities which are great but i i struggle <laughs> to hold my own in those debates um, sure. so you know I don't know that there there is no empirical data on on user effects in my to my knowledge on user effects of male produced pornography versus female produced or, or women produced pornography that's meant to be um, not necessarily so stuck on the male gaze. You know, most pornography is produced from the for the male gaze. It's a male gaze perspective. Pornography produced by women for women, that notion. There's not any empirical data that I know of on how that affects users. I do know that there is quite a bit of writing in in some of the media studies, some in communication studies, some in philosophy. And I want to say I've seen some some in, in the arts and not fine arts. I'm trying to think what what arts department it was that had done. They've done research on this looking at but it, it's again it's it's a very um content analysis kind of quality focus and not necessarily focused on the user effects so i can't speak to how it affects people i do know that it's an ongoing debate that pornography produced by women for women is a growing area the notion of being ethical in porn consumption that being right. feminist in porn consumption is increasingly a growing idea and i think it'll be interesting that shape thing that shapes up that i think 10 years from now there certainly will be empirical data on it i just i'm not aware of any today great. yeah that's great that's uh, looking forward to seeing your students one of your students do that kind of project <laughs> in the future that's a free dissertation idea right there boom <laughs> Well, um, thank you so much, Josh, for your yeah, time. For I, I really appreciate your expertise in this area. I think a lot of people are curious about this, and it's just great to hear someone who has such a scientific perspective, but also a very compassionate perspective towards this. So thank Absolutely. you, Josh. Absolutely. Thank you. Very centered, very data-driven, just kind of what we strive to do. So thank you so much, Josh. Mm-hmm.